guys. I'm Ray Bella, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. Except today's episode isn't about how an individual word has changed over time. It's about how the idiomatic expression to beg the question has been misused over time. Let's cut straight to the chase. The reason why I put this episode together is because back in episode 6, I myself misused the expression to beg the question as if it meant to raise the question. If this were a different podcast, I could make all the grammatical and syntactical errors in the world and no one would notice and no one would care, but since this podcast is about words and their historical importance... I couldn't let this mistake go without rectification. And what better way to rectify it than by dedicating a whole episode to it? First things first, let me clarify the difference between to beg the question and to raise the question. The meaning of to raise the question is straightforward. If a particular statement prompts an obvious question, then it raises the question. For instance, If you're walking down the street and all of a sudden it starts raining cats and dogs, literally, that might raise the question, am I on hallucinogenic drugs? The meaning of to beg the question, on the other hand, is semantically deceptive. If a particular statement is based on a conclusion whose premise lacks objective support, then that statement begs the question. For instance, if I said... Eating mozzarella sticks will make you happy because mozzarella sticks taste great. That begs the question. We'll analyze this example in greater depth in a few minutes. By the way, if you're confused about what the question is, begging the question doesn't involve an actual question. It also doesn't involve begging. It's simply a poorly worded idiom whose awkward semantics we just have to accept if we choose to accept them at all. Due to beg the question's widespread misusage, some authoritative sources now accept it as a legitimate synonym of to raise the question. All of this raises a couple of questions. Why does beg the question mean what it means? Does its traditional meaning matter? Do we have a linguistic obligation to preserve it? Should we go with the flow of its misusers and accept that its traditionally correct meaning is dead? Well, we're going to answer these questions and more over the course of today's episode. But first, I'd like to mention that today's episode is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of expertly performed audiobooks. Audible has over 180,000 titles of audiobooks that you can listen to anytime, anywhere. If you like fiction, Audible has a book for you. If you like science, Audible has a book for you too. If you like poetry or politics or anything at all, Audible has the book for you. If you sign up at audibletrial.com slash wordsforgranted, you'll get one month free, and not only that, but you'll be supporting the show. You can find a link right in the show notes for today's episode. I hope you sign up today. Okay, So let's dig into the origins of this very unusual verb phrase. The widespread misusage of to beg the question stems from a series of translations spanning some 2,000 years. 
The linguistic DNA of to beg the question can be traced back to ancient Greek. From there, the phrase was translated into Latin and from there into English. Along the way, its linguistic DNA mutated and evolved, or devolved depending on your point of view, into the modern English misusage. It all starts with a guy named Aristotle. You may have heard of him. In his work On Sophistical Refutations, Aristotle presents 13 logical fallacies. In the realm of philosophy, a fallacy is a failure of reasoning that renders an argument invalid. According to W.A. Pickard's translation of Aristotle's original Greek phrase, ta enache ai teisthai, one of these 13 fallacies is to assume the original conclusion. This fallacy has also been translated as to assume the original point and to assume the original argument. These three terms all mean the same thing. But what exactly is it that they mean? According to Aristotle's original definition, to assume the original conclusion or to assume the original point is to use an argument's unproven conclusion as the premise of the argument itself. Let's think back to my mozzarella sticks example from earlier. I said that eating mozzarella sticks will make you happy because mozzarella sticks taste great. This is a tremendously flawed argument for several reasons, but as it pertains to our discussion, it assumes the conclusion because the entire argument hinges on the unproven assumption that mozzarella sticks taste great. Logicians classify this kind of fallacy as circular reasoning because the argument runs in a circle. It ends where it begins, and it begins where it ends. Here's a more nuanced example of assuming the conclusion. Ghosts are real because I have seen a ghost. Okay, the argument is ghosts are real, and the supporting claim is because I have seen a ghost, but the problem with the argument is that the supporting claim assumes that ghosts are real, thus the argument itself is built on an assumption. Let's look at one more, just for fun. This one comes from Oscar Wilde. Quote, A man who has studied law to its highest degree is a brilliant lawyer because a brilliant lawyer has studied law to the highest degree. End quote. Okay, I think by now you get the point. During the early Middle Ages, an unknown medieval scribe, or perhaps scribes, translated Aristotle's phrase, ta enache ateisthai, into Latin as petito principi. So let's examine the semantics of this translation in detail. First, let's tackle the meaning of Aristotle's verb, ateisthai. In an everyday context, this could mean to ask, to demand, or to beg, but in a philosophical context, it would mean to postulate or to assume. This latter sense of the word is how Aristotle would have meant it in his discussion of fallacies. The medieval scribe who first translated the text into Latin translated the word aitesthai as petito. In classical Latin, the historical phase of Latin spoken in the ancient world, petito, like aitesthai, had a handful of meanings. It could mean to attack, to blow, to request, to beg, or to petition. But in medieval Latin, the historical phase of Latin used for scholarship in the Middle Ages, 
Petito had come to mean to postulate, as in to assume something is true as a basis for reasoning. Based on both the context and chronology of the medieval translation at hand, to postulate is probably the meaning of petito that the translator had in mind. Enarche, the other crucial part of Aristotle's phrase, means the start of an argument, or the original point, and our unknown medieval scholar translated this into Latin as principi. Principi means beginnings, origins, or foundations. Thus, ta enache aitesthai, roughly to assume the conclusion or to assume the original point, was translated into Latin as petito principi, roughly to postulate or petition the origins or foundations. As you can see, we don't get an exact translation of the original Greek phrase, but we can get a general idea. Now, for the next part of our story, keep this in mind. From the medieval period through the Renaissance, Latin was the language of learning. Medieval Latin and Renaissance Latin represent two distinct phases of development within the language, but for our purposes, it suffices to say that, generally speaking, Latin was Western Europe's long-standing medium of intellectual discourse, and many topics, including philosophy, science, and law, among others, were studied and written in Latin, even though no one spoke the language out in the streets. When compared to its status as a dead language today, Latin was a little less dead back then. As a consequence of this, many Latin words and phrases trickled down into the mainstream English vernacular. These terms would not have seemed foreign to educated men because all educated men were educated in Latin. Many of these words and phrases were eventually anglicized, but some retained their Latin integrity over the years and are still lurking quietly in modern English today. Ad hoc, ad nauseum, circa, de facto, etc., in vitro, per capita, per diem, quid pro quo, pro bono, verbatim. Do any of these sound familiar? If you understand what they mean, then you can understand a little bit of Latin. However, our understanding of these terms is a little skewed. We understand what they mean in the context of English, not Latin. For instance, while you may know that the English definition of quid pro quo is a favor granted in exchange for something, you may not know that in Latin, quid pro quo literally means something for something. Similarly, you may know that verbatim means a reproduction of something in exactly the same words as the original, but you may not know that, in Latin, verbatim is a compound word that literally means word by word. On the contrary, during the Renaissance period, many people would have literally understood these Latinisms, and this seemingly minor detail is actually the main culprit behind the erroneous development of the phrase to beg the question. But before to beg the question came into the English language, Petito Principi did. From the 14th through 16th centuries, the phrase Petito Principi was used verbatim in its Latin form by philosophical writers. Let me read a passage from the introduction to Volume 1 of David Hume's Treatise on Human Nature that comments on the beliefs of John Locke. Quote, 
The relation of cause and effect, according to Locke's general statement as to relation, must be something not contained in the real existence of things, but extraneous and superinduced. Thus, not only does the datum of the process of invention in question involve a derived idea, but a derived idea which presupposes just this process of invention. Here again, it is necessary to guard against the notion that Locke's obvious petito principi might be avoided by a better statement without essential change in his doctrine of ideas. End quote. Now, don't spend too much time analyzing the meaning of that passage. The point of my sharing it is simply to demonstrate that petito principi was beginning to be inserted into otherwise English texts. However, beginning in the late 16th century, people began translating petito principi into English as to beg the question as a colloquial alternative to the Latin phrase. Let's investigate this kind of weird translation word by word. Why the verb to beg? Well, Recall that the verb petito had several senses, one of which meant to beg. Literally speaking, beg is a perfectly acceptable translation of petito, but within the context of Aristotle's particular usage of the word, this translation makes no sense. This kind of literal translation of a word or phrase from one language into another is called a calc. The phrase to beg the question is somewhat of a half-calc, because question isn't exactly a direct translation of principi. Calcs are fascinating, and instead of going into further detail about them here, I'm going to put together a bonus episode on the topic very soon. So, if you want to learn more about calcs, keep your eyes out for that. So that's how we arrived at to beg. But what about the question? Where did the question in to beg the question come from? Isn't a question an interrogative statement? Well, yes, but that wasn't always the case. The modern sense of the word has always been around, but it also had older senses such as a philosophical or theological problem or a difficulty or doubt. So, with this in mind, it's not hard to see why principi, which referred to the foundational flaws of a philosophical argument, would have been translated as question. Obviously, we no longer have this sense of the word today, which is why the non-existent question in To Beg the Question raises so many questions. And now, for perhaps the most relevant question of all. Should the historical origins of To Beg the Question dictate how we use the expression today? According to prescriptive linguistics, the answer is yes, and according to descriptive linguistics, the answer is no. Prescriptive linguistics is a term used to describe how a language should be used according to authoritative sources. For the sake of remembering this definition, you can draw a parallel between linguistic prescription and a medical prescription. A medical prescription describes how a particular medication should be used according to authoritative sources. However, language doesn't quite work like medicine. Sometimes, Improper grammar is easier to understand and more intuitive than proper grammar. We use improper grammar all the time in everyday speech, even without realizing it. This may sound paradoxical, but the intuitive use of improper grammar is often a sign of true familiarity with a given language. 
When people learn a second language out of a textbook or in a classroom, they may learn to speak with impeccable grammar, but what they may lack is that intuitive and colloquial feel that comes from real-life immersion in a language. Descriptive linguistics, on the contrary, is a term used to describe the analysis of how language is actually used in the real world. A few years ago, linguist Mark Lieberman performed a Google News search of To Beg the Question, and out of the first 50 hits, a whopping 98% used the phrase as a synonym of To Raise the Question and the only prescriptively correct usage of the phrase appeared in an article condemning the phrase's modern misusage. But at this point, is misusage even the right word to use? If we take a descriptive linguistic approach to the meaning of beg the question, it seems pretty clear that it does in fact mean to raise the question. I mean, 49 out of 50 contemporary usages can't be wrong, can they? Again, This depends on who you ask. The prescriptive pedants will insist on the traditional usage, the descriptive anarchists will insist on the modern misusage, and most people will not care at all. So, where do I stand on the matter, you ask? Perhaps to your surprise, I fall into the I don't care at all camp. I would be lying if I said I was passionate about preserving the original semantic intention of an arbitrary mistranslation of an arbitrary Aristotelian fallacy. In fact, there are very few linguistic trends that I'm passionate about preserving because, by and large, linguistic trends are fickle. The very inevitable fact that languages undergo change is the very premise that this show is built upon. What I'm interested in is discussing and analyzing how and why these changes occur. Okay, that's it for this one, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. I'd like to give a special thanks to Dana Burgess for his translation of Aristotle's Ancient Greek for this episode. Ancient Greek is not my forte. Don't forget to follow Words for Granted on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you know someone who might enjoy the podcast, tell them about it. And if you enjoy the show, I ask that you leave a positive review on iTunes because that's how more people will find out about the show and I want to keep this thing growing. If you have questions, comments, or concerns about the show, feel free to email me at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show directly, you can always do so via Patreon. Patreon is a crowdfunding service that allows independent creators to get their work out into the world. You can head over to my website, wordsforgranted.com, to find out more. After we reach the first $100 mark, I'll be posting exclusive content available only to contributors. Okay, I'll see you next time here at Words for Granted.